This is episode 24 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. This week, we have user research expert Farah Bostic on the show to talk about empathy. That term is in the news a lot lately, and we go deep on its importance in design, how to grow it among product teams, and very frankly, how it's frequently misused. So let's get right to it. Yeah, good. So normally, like I said, when I uh, have people on the show, I kind of know who they are, like, or, or have a relationship with them, and we just kind of catch up and talk about a particular topic. But in this case, I was just kind of, you know, reading one night and came across a Medium article that you wrote, and I was like, well, that sounds smart. I should have you on. So thanks for being <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Now, the title of the article is something that made me go back to the, the, the people who run the network that I have the podcast <laughs> on, the Relay FM uh, founders. And I was like, yeah. so I'm going to do this, art, uh, this podcast with somebody who wrote an article called Empathy is Bullshit. Do I have to bleep that out? And they were like, yeah, you got to bleep that out. So they, had, they gave me some, you know, like, well, because the iTunes rating changes and our sponsors and all of that. So um, as we talk about this, there may be a few, uh, you know, those annoying beeps that come in. But it did make me, it did make me think about uh, just swearing in general, you know, because I've had this and, and try to have like, well, I should probably have a position on this for my own podcast and think about that. Uh, yeah. And I'm raising two small children, and I, so I thought a little bit, you know, when they're very young and they start experimenting with with swear words, and it made me think about what position do I take with my kids? And and for me, it's always been, you know, like I come from a, a background as a writer, and so it's language, and you're using language, and you need to be taught to use language well, and that's my entire philosophy, and I'm like, you guys have to figure out how to swear. I swear around the house, they sometimes do, but you got to understand how people are going to receive what you're saying right. and think about that before you do it. So don't swear at school because, you know, like you'll get in trouble for that. And don't swear just in front of anybody without really feeling comfortable and knowing that they're going to accept it. And so then yeah, now the other night we're sitting around having dinner and it's, and my little five-year-old girl, who's just as sweet as can be, is not eating. And I tell her like, Hey, the, um, you know, you got to eat your potatoes. And she looks at me and she goes, Dad, I'm not going to do it. They're too f***ing cold. <laughs> and I, I literally, like, two emotions at the same time. One, overwhelmingly proud. I'm like, well done. Like, that's, a, that's exactly how you're supposed to use that. And two, like, okay, we got to practice. Like, when is this appropriate? Right, right. Yeah. Anyway, that's just a long uh, rant on why I'm going to bleep out whenever we talk about your article. That's all. Oh, no, it's fine. My, I remember very vividly being at a mall in suburban Portland, Oregon as a kid with my, my mother. And either I or my brother uttered a swear word. And she said, um, okay, we got to talk about this, <laughs> which was more or less what you said, which was until you know who's comfortable with it and who's not, you should not say it. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a word. But you know, don't, don't just know who your audience is. And at the time, and I was young, you know, seven or something like that, it just seemed incredibly reasonable to me. And <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, I swear in public all the time, but, um, but that's a whole different conversation. Well, you know, you're using <laughs> language to create an effect. It's, it's appropriate, I think. So let's talk about this. Oh, this is, this is good. This is something that's been on my mind for quite a while. This, this idea of empathy and design, uh, you took a particular slant on that questions in my head um, about user research and things like that. Maybe we should back up a little bit. Like you do user research for a job. Is that right? 
Yeah. I mean, so my background's weird, but about the last probably 15 years of it has been spent mainly in research and market research and product and and design research. So I'm a qualitative researcher. I ask people questions for a living. I poke my nose in their pantries and watch them do stuff. So that's that's my that's what my job is. So then just to sort of drill down on that, things like qualitative research, like usability, like validating designs, but also on the discovery side, more of the ethnography. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think more of my focus is probably on the discovery side, but I've done lots and lots of usability. <laughs> lots of bread and butter. Um, it's like, yeah, I, when we've started Adaptive Path Agency years ago, like that was the that was the fundamental like that paid the mm-hmm. bills that t- kept the lights going on or totally. kept the lights on right. Yeah, the, the, that's what people wanted. That's what they knew. And then we always found I probably have mentioned this on the podcast before, but we came to that crisis point where we were doing all this usability testing, and the results were always the thing you're designing. Eh, here's a few tweaks. The problem is nobody wants it. And, you know, and so, and they were like, well, how could we have, and you could have called this six months ago and we could have done the kind of discovery research that would have generated solutions based on actual needs. So I guess that's what you're spending your time doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, my, my, before I got more into product focused research, it was more marketing focused research. We had the exact same problem on that side of, you know, everybody wants copy testing. Everyone wants creative you know, creative development research, as we like to call it in that business, which really was evaluation of creative ideas. But even in that instance, it was frequently too little, too late and same problem. You know, people don't care the the value proposition, the product, the positioning, whatever is, is wrong. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how good the copy is. Yeah. 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 Turns out. (laughs) Uh, And so you spend time in people's homes, you get to do site visits like that. That's because that's pretty rare that like research goes that far. Like yeah. People are willing to pay that much for that sort of research, in my it's, experience. Yeah, it's it's rare in my practice as well. Um, I, I think one of the ways I, I get around it is is actually through using more digital tools. So mm. you know, the, the ability to um, talk to people more than once um, is is made easier by not making them come into a focus group facility where yeah. I have to pay you know a rental fee. Um, so I can talk to them more than once. I can ask them to take pictures of things and share it with me. I can get on a, a Skype video call and and see them face-to-face. It is still always a thing I propose, let me go meet people where they live. Um, but it's really hard to get clients to pay for it. They, they do not see the value in it. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they would rather push a survey, to be honest. So getting them to do any kind of conversation-based research is is a challenge enough. Interesting. Um, but so, yeah. So yeah. yeah, so my days as a practitioner uh, were over uh, about 10 years ago when it comes to like, and then I moved into product work and essentially became the client hiring people to do research for me. Um, but what a, what a dramatic change that everybody has a smartphone now. Like it, that just occurred to me when you said that you can like do video calls and have people take pictures of things and send them to you. Those things weren't available to me in 2005, remarkably right. like, and that yeah. doesn't seem that long ago, but wow, what a change. So those methods are probably have opened up quite a bit for not as expensive, but more frequent research. Absolutely. One of the things that um, we were doing just before smartphones became so widespread, so kind of dominantly adopted, was we were we were heavily dependent on, I don't know if you remember this device, but it's called a flip cam. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. And yeah. I, I can't remember who made it, but this was not their core business. And they eventually sunsetted it. And we were very sad yeah. um, because we would we would give them to our research participants to use. And it was part of the incentive for participation. That's great. They yeah. loved them and they were super easy to use. Mm-hmm. And and they would they would always wind up 
documenting more than you specifically asked them to mm-hmm. just because the novelty of playing with the thing was was so much fun. Yeah. So yep. so that was that was where we started with it. And then obviously now we don't have to spend two hundred dollars before we've spent any other money. <laughs> I'm just supplying them with the technology to do things. Right. And and you know, you also have all of these bespoke uh, well, I wouldn't say bespoke, but these these sort of complicated um, online qualitative platforms. And now I can literally say, you know, here's a Dropbox folder, just save it to this. Yeah. And, and people are pretty comfortable doing that now. Yeah, great. It should make it easier. And yet still, we're, it's always the uphill battle of trying to trying to get people to actually take the time and, and spend the money to do the research. But, it's true, yeah. yeah. So this has been a thing that I have been talking about quite a bit lately. Like all my work is with startups these days and trying to instill this idea of connection to the the people who will be using your product uh, in everybody in the company and using research as a method for doing that. And the label that I have been giving that is empathy. In my experience working with design and being a designer and working with engineers, that so often the goal of the work that we're doing is elegance and this sense of like, I have made something beautiful, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, some code that I've written or a design that I have crafted, but that, that sort of frankly ego driven uh, mentality of making something elegant and beautiful and switching that to saying, no, it needs to be useful. Right. And the best way that I have found to do that is to put a person, make a person who is, a, who is creating code or designs or something, have them sit and watch a person use the thing they've created and see them struggle and, and feel the like impotency of not being able to just talk to them and say, no, 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 here's what you do. Like you don't have that luxury when they're out in the world. So we're going to watch them do that. And how that changes the conversation then when we're back making the product again and we're all sitting around the table or at the whiteboard and somebody says, remember when she did this, let's do this for her. Mm. And that change, I have been labeling as empathy. I think that's probably not as nuanced as it could be uh, after, you know, looking at some of what you've written, written and linked to. Um, but, but that's why that, that was the genesis of the conversation I wanted to have with you, which is, is that a, empathy? Is that a good thing? What right do we have to design for people who aren't like us and all of those things? So mm. I guess my first question is, why do you think empathy is bullshit? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I came from a similar impulse. And, and, and as a qualitative researcher, I would, I would have a natural bias for that. I, I sit in the room with people that I'm asking to look at things and try things and tell me about their lives. Yeah. It's, it was a very interesting early experience working in focus group facilities where my clients were in the back room with their blackberries and their takeout <laughs> and um, and their colleagues. And they were kind of like, um, you know, what are those animals, meerkats or something like they sort of pop up when they heard what they wanted to hear. Right, right. Um, but the rest of the time be fairly disengaged. And coming back to check, do you guys have any follow-up questions? And instead it's people making fun of what someone's wearing or making fun of a funny accent or, um, criticizing someone is not obviously, they don't get it. So they're not our target audience. They're not smart enough to use our product. Exactly. And and a lot of disdain in, um, in the back rooms. And, And so one of my first solutions was to say, just at a basic sort of primate level. If you have to sit in close proximity to another human and look them in the eye, you know, mirroring behavior starts to kick in and the 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 sort of biomechanics of a thing we've come to call empathy take over whatever your disdain is. If nothing else, your desire to be socially acceptable and polite mm-hmm. will stop you from being a jerk in the back room. So I started asking 
clients to bring fewer clients with them and to sit in the room with me um, and to participate in that research. And frequently they said, no, they didn't want to do that. They were worried about influencing the outcomes of the research, which just isn't really a thing. You don't think so? you can't. I'm, I'm curious about well, you, that. You, like, I mean, you, you have to train them a little bit. Not to yes, like, uh, you know, it, sigh exactly. or scoff or whatever when somebody does something, I would imagine. like Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely some some watch outs where it's, you know, tr try to be aware of your body language. Don't bring a laptop into the room. You know, if you want to jot notes, that's fine. I'll give you a pad of post-it mm -hmm. notes and a Sharpie. So mm -hmm. you're jotting notes the same way we're jotting notes. Mm -hmm. That you're in the room already, that there's a an introduction made of who you are and why you're there. And that in general, your job is to sit and listen, not to interject. If there's, you know, a specific question about the product that the user has and I can't answer it, then that's a good time to speak up. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the time, be in a listening mode. I will save time for you to ask follow-up questions if you have them. Right. And in general, people are pretty respectful of strangers. <laughs> yeah, um, turns out. It always has, uh, you know, given me a great deal of faith, I guess, in, in humans to, to do this kind of work. But you still have clients who just don't trust that they will not somehow inadvertently influence the outcome or that they won't make the, the participant feel uncomfortable. Participants are pretty flexible. They've already been asked to do something weird. <laughs> so right. once they're, sure. once they're in the room like it's fine after that and i've wondered about that like does that cause a little bit of anxiety in the person like wow i have all these people watching me Wh whereas you know if there's the people in the other room with the tv or through the even through the mirrored glass it kind of it, they forget about them after a while but it's true and you can see the moment when they forget about the back room yeah. because they start seeing the mirror as a mirror instead yeah. of a window yeah, yeah, and yeah. they start checking their hair and stuff like that <laughs> but um <laughs> But I think, you know, so so I think at a, at a basic level, it's better than nothing, right? S sitting in the room with people, actually having a conversation with them, being able to ask your own questions or, or listen to them from a point of proximity goes a long way towards building this thing that we have been calling empathy. Yeah. And I think that that's, in general, a very good impulse. What, what I think I'm seeing now, however, is a, a feeling that empathy is, <laughs> is everything. It's kind of like everything else in the startup world. You come up with a philosophy philosophy and suddenly we're doing the philosophy mm. and you know you can sit in the lotus position but not believe in or share the values of buddha like that's got it, got it. Th yeah. those are different things so it strikes me and, a little bit as as a technique or, or a concept gets more popularized it gets watered down uh, and the meaning of what we're trying to do in, is losing i mean it reminds me of the term the cloud Right. Which is, you know, we're talking about client server architecture and there's some very sp specific things, but now it's just, are you cloud ready? Are you cloud enabled? I see this on billboards all over <laughs> London, right? Like, yeah. you know, as enterprise cloud solutions. So now it doesn't mean anything, right? There's no, yeah. so is that a little bit what you're talking about? Your, your, your frustration here that empathy has just turned into like, oh yeah, we need some of that. Can we have some? Yeah, I think empathy has become a code word for not doing surveys, not looking at <laughs> analytics dashboards. It's 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 talking to people, which I think is is good. And and there are there are really good resources about how to do it well, even from a beginner perspective. I mean, Gift Constable wrote a book called Talking to Humans. It's a good book yeah. if you want to do user research for the very first time. It's a good place to start. But a lot of what underpins the practice is respect and doing everything you can to 
avoid condescension. Everything you can to sort of stop seeing yourself as, well, I'm the designer or I'm the, the product developer or I'm the one who knows. And so now I'm checking in with you to see how I can make this easier for you. Hmm. There's, a, there's a sort of superiority baked yeah. in to that. And so people are sort of doing empathy and what they mean is talking to humans, yeah. which is great, but it's still missing the kind of respect and I think in, in my post I talked about there's sort of understanding the context and a depth of understanding. Meeting a person for 45 minutes is not enough to know their whole life story and how they're coming to things and why they're reacting to things in the way that they are. Obviously, I would love to do more of that sort of contextual work, but it's just acknowledge you don't know everything about them. Yeah. Let's start there. A little bit of humility. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then matching that with some respect and some basic kindness mm-hmm. um, to people as opposed to this, how, how can I help you along you? commoner <laughs> with this wonderful thing I'm trying to create. So that is is something that I have struggled with over the course of my career. This idea that in the sort of designer or maker uh, versus user world, mm-hmm. there's a subjugation there, right? Like mm-hmm. I am creating this thing for you. And I remember this so early, early on in our Adaptive Path days, I was uh, leading a project for Weight Watchers. We were designing their first online Mm. web app for uh, point tracking and diet journaling and all that sort of stuff, right? That that they ended Mm. up being very, very successful with over time. But I remember at the at the t- at the beginning of the project, I was like, I can't do this research. I don't think it's appropriate for me to do the actual research to actually facilitate the sessions that we were going to do, you know, because I'm like I'm six six white dude that um, <laughs> is embarrassingly thin. Like there's like I shouldn't like I don't think I'm going to get the right. I'm not going to be able to create the right environment for people to really feel open enough to tell me exactly how they feel about this. So I hired a bunch of contractors who were closer to the the kind of target demographic of the user that Weight Watchers was looking at to conduct all of that. And then I realized, like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring all kinds of assumptions to the design work itself, regardless of the what we see in the research. So I took a further step back and and really tried to be a participant in that rather than leading the whole project and stuff like that. But that was the first time it really occurred to me that like Wow, we can we can talk a lot about research and understanding user needs and building empathy and things like that. But but in, at the end of the day, shouldn't people who are in the represented group be the ones solving for that? And that frankly informed a lot of my future design work. Like when we built Typekit, we were building it for people who were just like us, which were you know sort of pretty technical designers who were kind of on the cutting edge of technology and design and stuff. I mean, it, it was a, it was a product that required you to be able to hand code, like you had to take JavaScript and put it <laughs> in your web page. that eliminated a huge swath of the potential audience. Uh, but that's where we started because that's what we knew and we didn't have to do it. We did some validation research and we did research with on the business models and things like that. But you know, you see where I'm getting like, yeah. Oh man. The other thing, um, is in internationalization. Like we, oh. we're designing, <laughs> when I was at Adobe, we're designing creative cloud interfaces for 14 different geographies. And mm-hmm. I remember like we're in, we're in Tokyo and we're meeting with the team on the ground in Tokyo and they were like, what are you doing? Like, do you understand any of this? And I'm like, no, I really don't. And they're like, you can't just translate the words. And I, and, and I completely respect that. And, and I realized the model here is for us to create an API that then allows designers in each geography to make the best possible experience for those audiences. Anyway, that's right. a, that was a lot of stuff. But that has been the struggle that I've had in my career for a couple of decades now. What right do I have? 
<laughs> well, it's interesting you bring up the, the question of international internationalization adaptation, because that was really one of the first real jobs I had. Was I was at mm. Chiat Day in Los Angeles. I was working on the Apple account oh, in man. the Fantastic. in this sort of period where they had just launched the the IMAX, and they were now doing the the color refresh. So they're going from those kind of candy colors to the jewel tones. And I worked on it from about that point in time through the launch of Apple stores mm. and yep. and iTunes. So we, we launched the iPod, we launched the Apple stores, all of that had happened in that period. And my job was among other things, but mostly to brief all of our sister agencies around the world on how to adapt the, the creative that was coming out of, uh, out of LA. And there were all kinds of really weird practices that were in place. <laughs> um, and there were, you know, you'd, you'd send the copy to Tokyo and they would write it in Japanese and they would write a back translation to tell you what it said. Mm. And then we'd have this argument whether, you know, the, the back translation suggested the things that we wanted to suggest. Right. And there's also a point in time where the copy was really punny. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of like, honey, I shrunk the supercomputer. Yeah, you know, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Things, yeah. right? And and so you had, and, and then a lot of idiom and a lot of um, uh, kind of culturally relevant metaphor yep. that didn't necessarily work in Portuguese or in Brazilian Portuguese. And so there was this move that we kind of collectively made to say this process of direct translation doesn't work. And we need to trust these partners to be more than sort of transcriptionists, but to be, um, and, and direct translators, but to be our kind of, you know, a cultural translator and, and to help us express the spirit of the message in a way that's locally relevant. And so what we started doing was saying, all right, it's a little bit more work, but we think it will lead to better work. So first of all, this is what we're trying to get across. Here's the actual creative as it will run in the United States. Tell us how you would express this idea in your culture, in your, in your country, and then give us, <laughs> for a while, <laughs> I was doing this slightly guerrilla move of give me two back translations, the real one and the one that looks an awful lot like the original American copy. <laughs> <laughs> and then trust me that I'll have your back. And for some reason, they trusted me. I mean, I was like 23 years old and had absolutely no authority, but they figured, you know, she seems to be the one running this show and she's willing to go to bat for us. So let's give it a try. And in the end, the work was much, much better. But a lot of it is sort of saying, there's a lot I don't know. I need to trust you and you need to trust me. And let's try to figure this out together. Mm -hmm. And th that is where I think you can be not the target, um, not the end user, and still do the research. I think you're absolutely right. Where you can, you should have people that can, that aren't going to suffer from being, you know, seen as not one of us right. at the outset of the conversation. That, that certainly creates an initial barrier to any kind of intimacy in the conversation. But, but I think there are ways around it. And one of them is to just say, I don't know. You do. That's why you're in the room. You're the expert. I'm here to learn from you. And even if the thing that you're an expert in is how you commute to work and how you customize your, your you know, your smartphone wallpaper right, <laughs> and right. um, how you shop like that. That's that's fine. I don't know. So I need you to tell me. And people have an instinct where they want to help. So when you frame it that way, they sort of roll up their sleeves and start explaining things to you. And the other the other situation that comes to mind is years ago, we did this project for I think it was Bombay Sapphire. And they were sponsoring a three-day event in Chicago uh, for the African-American community. And 
gin at the time was not particularly popular among African-Americans. And so they were trying to understand why. And they did this big sponsorship. And we attended the event, recruited at the event. And I interviewed everybody mm. <laughs> in, in focus groups. Like, you know, the next day I'd interview people who came to the first night and the second night and the third night. And it was a funny thing to be a white woman in her early 30s sitting in a room of African, you know, fairly affluent, educated African-Americans in Chicago saying, so tell me about this event and tell me about gin and tell me about this brand and what's going on. But I think there was an interesting thing as being the stranger where I don't know. And as long as I'm humble and acknowledge that I don't know and say, I'm going to let you talk and I'm going to listen, but this is the stuff I need to learn in order to do what I need to do. Then again, people rolled up their sleeves and, um, and explained it to me. Yeah. And again, I think the thing that you have to do then is you have to be aware of yourself. And when people are saying things that you don't feel an affinity for it, you don't recognize it in your own life that you have to notice that and then let it go. When people say something you disagree with, that you just, I interviewed a woman the other day in Hong Kong who said, you know, look, democracy doesn't fit everywhere. Sometimes you need a strong man dictator in order to deal with a drug problem. Right. And I was right. like, I just wow. don't agree. <laughs> right? like, like at a fundamental level, I will never agree with that sentiment, but that's not what the point of the conversation was. It's not about me. So there's, there's something in that as well. I think you can be the stranger, you can not be the end user, but as long as you understand it is not about you and you subjugate yourself to your customer, your user, your audience, then, then it flips the dynamic in an interesting way. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. 
Go to pingdom.com slash presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. So uh, while I was reading about this issue, I came across a quote that really struck me, which said, empathy distorts our moral judgments in pretty much the same way that prejudice does. Mm. And I found that really, really interesting, this, uh, this idea that one of the things that I've always sort of preached about user research is that qualitative research isn't anything like quantitative research. You can get good findings with six or eight people. Right. And you can uh, you don't need to talk to 10,000 people and do a statistical analysis. It's all about being inspired by uh, events and moments in that research to inform sort of solutions as you as you move forward. And now that a quote like that kind of brings me back like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, Uh, this idea that like I can have empathy for someone and but that that empathy for them is not remotely reflective of how things are in the world. And I think one of the classic examples of this is the school shooting at, in was it Newton, mm. Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. Newtown, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Newtown, yeah. right. That school shooting like that is a statistical anomaly in the overall, like how many school children die every year. Like there's far more kids in Chicago alone that die uh, due to gun violence than there are in that incident that happened that one time. Yet the empathic outpouring of support and aid and like the, the town frankly got overwhelmed and it made the problems worse, right? That they, mm-hmm. um, that t- so many toys were coming in and so much money was coming in that they were like, you get stop and let us heal versus the overall problem in general. And I wonder like, is that a threat in the kind of qualitative research that we do that we see people struggling in ways that may not be reflective, but we have this like, you know, this, this natural outpouring of emotion for that and wanting to solve that problem again in that almost, uh, you know, pejorative way of like, Oh, I, I can solve your problem. Yeah. It's an interesting, I think one of the things that happens with empathy and it's where some of that research about the downsides of empathy gets really fascinating is that it it creates a, a moment of you can say artificial, but at, at the very least a kind of temporary tribe, and and I know I've felt it right when I go into that back room and my clients are being snarky, I feel defensive because I've just spent an hour in a room with these six humans and they're my people right now, and um, and you've been sitting back here in the dark eating M and M's and Chex Mix and you're not my people, <laughs> you know you're you yeah. become kind of the enemy, and and I. And I think they they especially become the enemy when they start criticizing my people who are who are just there to help. Um, and you know, yeah, get a sandwich and a hundred bucks, but mostly just to help. Um, and and in many respects, I think the the risk of these kinds of or the thing that happens in these events, rather not the risk, but the thing that happens in these events is you know a group of people who ordinarily feel exempt from an experience suddenly feel that they're not exempt. They they see themselves in a thing, and then they're at a remove. They're not actually experiencing it. They they feel a kind of um, you know a sympathy and again a kind of savior feeling of I can do something to help. And we again we want to help, mm-hmm. but. We don't really know how. And because we don't start by asking people, what do you need? Mm. We start sending diapers and toys and money when what people need is space and therapy and something else. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it is interesting that the sort of, I see myself in this. I've, I've spent time with you. So now we're part of some artificial tribe. I think I know best. I want to be helpful. I'm, I don't really understand at a visceral level what's going on with you. So I'm going to go through the motions and, yeah. and do the things that I think you're supposed to do. So 
this gets to the difference between empathy and perspective taking, right? This, uh, and perspective taking, well, so empathy really kind of coming back to, uh, an attempt for me to experience the pain that you're experiencing, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, versus the ability to take somebody else's viewpoint in a, into account when you're trying to set your own perspective on something when you're trying to decide how you feel. Let me make sure I have somebody else's perspective, which I think there's a nuance, a subtlety there that's actually really, really important. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, and, and, and it's, it's more work. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you actually have to, you do have to ask these questions. I think it, it, is, it is the place where if you were doing it well, you would be on the ground with people. It's a conversation I've thought a lot about in part as a result of both Brexit and the U.S. elections. Right, but right. this, and, and part of it was, you know, I went and canvassed the weekend before the election in uh, Coatesville, Pennsylvania, a little tiny town of about 20, 30,000 people. Mm. And, you know, you walk around the town and there's a lot of sectioned housing. You know, it's, it's not a particularly affluent town, but there's a lot that you get just from seeing the physical infrastructure of the place and understanding that here you are saying to people, do you know where to vote when they vote at the Methodist church down the block? Like, yeah, they know where to vote. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but you also start to hear people say things to you like, you know, we're good. You guys have been knocking on our doors every day for the last two weeks. And that's the first we've heard of you in four years. Right. And all of a sudden it's, oh, you know, <laughs> this is maybe not the most useful thing that we could be doing for them or with them or, you know, um, you know, we're asking people to do something. What are we giving back? And in order to figure any of that out, what are we giving back? What should we be giving back? Should we even be here? Like there, I had moments of, you know, again, white woman from Brooklyn knocking on doors of African-American families on a Sunday, you know, do I have any right to be doing this? Right. Yep. And then also trying to fight my own impulses as a researcher to stay and ask more questions of everybody apart from, do you have a plan for voting? There's a lot of work that has to be done in it. And part of it is trying to say, if I were in your position, how would I react to this? And it's a different exercise from, oh, you poor thing, or, oh, I'm so sorry, or gosh, if that happened to me, it would be awful. Yeah. The, the sense of pity, right? Which is, yes. which is uh, completely like a, a power dynamic for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and being able to see what's positive in something as well. I, I think there's, again, a, a very easy way to sort of say, well, this is, this is section housing. And then when they open the door, you don't look past them <laughs> into the room and see that, um, you know, there's a family there gathered around a table having, you know, having wine and enjoying an afternoon or watching the football game or, or whatever that's happening there. And so what you what you choose to see when you're not trying to do this perspective taking is also limited. And, and yeah. that's really where I think bias enters into it. it. Bias is what do I what do I choose to know? What do I choose to experience and see? Yeah. And um, and those things are subtle and, and, and not conscious. And so you have to prepare yourself. You have to start from a point of view of, I'm going to try to see the whole thing um, or as much of it as I can. It reminds me a lot of the, really the fundamentals of a basic mindfulness practice, really, where, yes. you know, you, you events occur and you have an emotional response to them that is immediate and automatic and generally pretty beneficial. Right. And I'm thinking like, 
you're driving down the road and somebody swerves in front of you and cuts you off. Your brain works before your mind does and you instantly react and get yourself out of danger. But then you have this right. surge of emotion, which is your mind taking over and trying to interpret this and things need to be fair and all of this. And it's so easy to fall into like, ah, that jerk. As opposed to, I think, in a much more of a perspective taking, what are all the reasons that that person did something that I saw as very dangerous? Yeah, That person could be rushing to the hospital because they just got a call that somebody they love is in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. You have literally no idea. The likely scenario is that they're just in a hurry and not considering others. But who knows what all those things are? But that simple act of catching the emotional response or the bias, for that matter— Catching mm -hmm. it before it turns into the dominant narrative in your head and, and, yes. and turning that around into, okay, like, let me try to evaluate all the things that are happening. Let me be really present with all of the possible scenarios. And I think that has that a way, like a, a set of skills that we can use to interpret what we hear from other people as we are trying to design for them. It sound, seems like that, that's aligned with what you're saying. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I think it's, it's something that we do actually for, um, and maybe overdue for, for people who are close to us where we're, and it can be when, you know, in the sense that we're overdoing it, that we're making excuses for other people that, that, well, he's having that reaction because he had a bad day. And also because he has a terrible relationship with his father and, you know, <laughs> you, you know enough about them right. to be able to put their immediate hair trigger reaction into a greater context. And, and that is a, a kind of, again, a, a kindness and a respect that we pay to people who we know well and, and, and that we have the benefit of knowing those things about them. Yeah. And, and where we don't know that, it's um, easier to either you know, express pity, or make it all about ourselves. Um, and, you know, if, if, you're, if you're doing research for the purpose of developing products and services and, and fixing things in the, in the environment or designing new processes, it's, it's not about you. Right. <laughs> and, and I think that, that is where you get really interesting things about, you know, d designers feeling that they know best, creative directors feeling that they know best, developers feeling that they know best, even researchers feeling that they know best, because I've seen this before and I think I know how it goes. Right, right, and at right. the same time, you also have this kind of, how do I get to the end? <laughs> like, like, how do I hasten to the conclusion that I need to draw? Or how do I answer the question I want to answer? And, and all of those things are important. Um, and not necessarily wrong, but like run amok, you wind up with, you know, Uber engineers with access to the God view stalking their ex-girlfriends. Yeah, sure. And it is this, I have the power to do this thing. And so I should, as opposed to, you know, taking a minute and, and thinking it through. But I think the other thing that, that I, I do think a lot about, and maybe it's because I, I work from home and I have a dog. <laughs> and so I spend a fair <laughs> amount of time looking at the dog and thinking about the dog and trying to understand what the dog is doing. But there's a, a book by Temple Grandin called Animals in Translation, where she talks about looking at a cattle yard. And there was some sort of point in, frankly, the slaughter process where the cows were being driven through these, these gates and, and aisles, and they would startle. And there were a couple of points of sort of bottlenecking where the cows would startle. And she just got down to cow level. <laughs> Yeah. and looked at the the route and went, well, there's a sharp piece of metal here and it glints in the sun and that, that startles them. And so we've got to file that down. And then there's a point where they go from outside to inside and cows' eyes don't adapt to the change in light particularly quickly. And unlike humans, they won't just go charging through. <laughs> so, um, oh my God. So yeah. <laughs> you have to 
control for that, right? Um, so knowing something about what it is to be a cow, like knowing their physiology and knowing what makes them startle and what doesn't make them startle is part of the perspective taking. But then just the physicality of get down and look at the, yeah. the world from the eye level of a cow. Um, and people think that they don't have to do that. Um, and it is sort of a, an essential hubris to being, you know, a, a higher primate, it seems to me. But there's um, there's a lot to be said for, well, why does my dog, when he comes home from the park in the morning with my husband, immediately, like, want to run outside? Well, partly it's he doesn't want the playtime to end. And he thinks he can prolong it by being out of reach of his leash or the kennel or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, he's... He's this is this is an emotional moment for him and understanding it from that perspective as opposed to he's being a pain in the ass. Sorry, I thought you're you have to bleep me on that. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> I got a lot of work to do in post production. Don't worry. <laughs> right. So it sounds like uh, it's it's this attempt from a design perspective to shift from uh, I have the solution to I'm going to approach this with a sense of kindness. It seems to keep mm -hmm. coming back to this notion of kindness and, and wanting to treat people kindly. Yeah, I, I you know, have literally had conversations with people who are close friends to me where our, our disagreements with each other, our, uh, our fights are fundamentally about a moment where we've failed to be kind to each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, th I think the same thing is true on, on the design side. And, and, and now, you know, I, I do research for clients. I, I teach at Parsons. I have to design a class experience for my students. They're coming from a wide variety of backgrounds and countries and goals and fears and all of that. And, and in order for them to have a successful experience, I have to try to understand where they're coming from and, and try to work with that as some of the material for designing the rest of it. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said for letting people breathe in, in the conversation yeah. and letting yes. them say what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even letting them say, I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> I, I'm skeptical about this, or I'm skeptical about you, and letting them ask some questions and letting there be silence for a few moments. All of those things are, are important so that people know that they are being heard and that they are being treated well. It's just a, everything's easier when, when people feel that you're, you're being nice to them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, nice is a lame word, but you know, kind, kindness is the right word. Like I, I'm, I'm here because I genuinely want to know, and I'm really, really genuinely trying to understand. And I'm not trying to make you do things, and I'm not starting from the place of a solution. Um, and I think that's the hardest thing, especially for designers. I teach designers. Designers want to design. They, they want to solve the problem. Um, and frequently they come into it with a, I know the answer. The answer is this. Yep. And and the um, ability to sort of say, maybe that's the answer. Let's set that aside for a minute and really understand what we're trying to achieve, what we're trying to solve for is, is the, the more important effort to spend at this point. Yeah, yeah. I think the other part of that though, is, is also this, again, we're back to condescension. There, there's an easy way for when you're designing, when you're solving your own problems to think that everyone shares 
you know, your beliefs about that problem. <laughs> the problem is as painful for everyone else as it is for you. Or, you know, even conversely, that you see people doing things inefficiently and you think as, as a designer that you could fix that. And so you automatically assume that it's a really painful problem when actually it's just sort of normal friction and it's not that big a deal. <laughs> and so once again, you're kind of acting in a fairly imperial way of I'm going to come in and save you from a thing that you didn't need saving from. Right. Um, and, and that's also a place where you have to be willing to hear actually we don't need your help. This is fine. Well, this is a fantastic perspective for us to try to take as we're, as we're doing all this work. I think you've convinced me that I should continue on the qualitative user research and not feel so guilty about it. Uh, <laughs> so long as I can maintain this idea of shifting my perspective rather than simply evaluating all my possible solutions. I like it. I think it's good. I think ultimately it's a bit like, you know, travel, the way travel uh, makes us feel about other people in the world uh, as opposed to just the people we've experienced in our community. So anyway, that's great. Uh, I will put links to the article that you wrote and some of the resources that you link to from yours in the show notes here and link to you on Twitter. Where else should people go and, and learn more about what you're up to? Um, that's, those are probably the best places to go. I mean, I, I have a, a website for my company, which is thedifferenceengine.co, but it's, it's not terribly exciting. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. I appreciate the time you took. It's been just an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen, and this was Presentable. Presentable.